Now, of course, there's more than 800 dead in Gaza, including members of your own extended family. What Do you know what happened to them? They were just sitting at their home and they were simply bombarded. Their entire building was brought down. Uh, my cousin, uh, Aya, her two children, her husband, her uh, mother-in-law, and two other relatives uh, died immediately, were killed instantly. And two of her youngest children, uh, a twin, two years old, are now in intensive uh, care. This is uh, truly uh, heartbreaking. And the issue here, uh, Kirsty, is that they have no bankers, they have no iron dome, they have nowhere to go. They are simply sitting ducks for the Israeli war machine. I'm sorry for your own personal loss. I mean, can I just be clear, though, you cannot condone the killing of civilians in Israel, can you, nor the kidnapped no, we don't families? Condone. No, we don't condone. And we are very clear, uh, 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 Kirsty. We reject uh, any targeting or harming of civilians from all sides. And you are talking to a Palestinian representative, official, the ambassador that I represent my government, the PLO, the national mm -hmm. movement of Palestine. And we have been committed to this for 30 years, not just today or yesterday. For 30 years, since the signing of the Oslo Accords, uh, we have committed to non-violence. We have committed to negotiations, so you, as you know. Yes, and so so this so is you, nothing new. That's no. why this question, this question, uh, we have done everything in our power to find a different path. But we have a situation now, as you heard there from Mark, uh, that Hamas may be, may be an empty threat, uh, threatening to kill hostages. You, do you condemn that kind of action? Listen, uh, hostages must be protected mm -hmm. and must be made safe and kept safe. Uh, uh, absolutely, this is has, has no uh, discussion whatsoever. We uh, we 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 must return the moral uh, high ground, uh, and Israel must immediately cease targeting civilians. And by the way, Kirsty, allow me to say this: this is an Israeli military doctrine. They call it the Iron Dome. Whenever there is such a, an incident, they go after the civilians to pressure the fighters. So you've heard one of the Israeli well, we know there's been a lot just, of strikes just two today. minutes ago. He wanted to starve the people in Gaza. He wanted to uh, cut electricity but, and water. These are war crimes, collective punishment. So uh, there is a possibility that both the UK and the European Commission will cut aid to Palestinians. What's your reaction to that? That would be very, very counterproductive and it doesn't serve anything. Well, they will do exactly what is Israel doing. They will do exactly the collective punishment and, and, and punishing the people who has nothing to do with this. My cousin is not Hamas. In fact, her husband works for the Palestinian Authority, the so, opponents of Hamas. These kids, four years and two years, have nothing to do with Hamas. Everybody, including these silly ideas in the world, are punishing the people and, that and have we nothing know, and we know to do with this. And we know that children that are young are also have died in uh, Israel. So in your view, is this a contained but appalling conflict between Hamas and Israel? Or do you think Hamas want to widen the conflagration? No, it's Israel now that wants to widen the, the, no, but, but, the scope. It's Israel but but Hamas might want this whole area to be destabilized. Uh, well, well, uh, well, Hamas is a militant group. We are the government. Israel has a government. There is the international community. The first and the foremost important priority now is to, to stop this madness, the atrocities but, immediately and to learn the lessons. Yes, so, this is the where does this lead?
Welcome, everybody, to Left Reckoning 139. My name is David Griscom, and I'm broadcasting to you all live from Austin, Texas, joined as always by my good friend and comrade, Mr. Matt Leck. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing well, David. Uh, good to be with you. <clears throat> well, as everybody knows, uh, what we're going to be talking about today is tough, um, and we're going to be talking about it uh, for a while. Um, that clip that uh, Matt just played, I think, really sets the stage um, for for what uh, we're witnessing um, for the lack of care and inhumanity that has been the norm uh, when it comes to the situation of the ongoing occupation and apartheid system and put upon Palestinian people. And I mean, like that, that, that clip, Matt, the unfortunate reality is we're going to see so many Palestinian people being incredibly graceful and collected um, in incredibly dehumanizing and aggravating situations like that one just there. Um, I mean, death haunted, like surrounded, like family members dead, gone in a blink of an eye. No, I mean, to like, to, to be sitting through what we're uh, viewing right now um, in, in Gaza, this collective punishment of Palestinian people, the bombings of homes and schools and communities, um, and still this need, this inability um, for an American media, certainly a UK media, uh, to be able to acknowledge uh, the, these kind of horrors and atrocities. Not that, not just that what's occurring now, but what the state of affairs was last week or month before, five years ago, 10 years ago, since the beginning of the occupation of Palestine, right? And we talked about this on Sunday, you know, whenever we, whenever this kind of thing happens, right? And this is unprecedented. This is unique. This is a different moment. There is such an attempt um, to not talk about facts, to not talk about reality, but rather to talk about kind of philosophical principles about what kind of resistance is right, what kind of resistance is wrong. And I'm not going to sit around um, here and pontificate about that, frankly. What I am going to talk about is the occupation the regular degradation of Palestinian life, and in fact, the loss of Palestinian life that we're seeing. It's very easy, uh, by the way, to be able to hold that in truth uh, while also saying that, yes, attacks on civilians by Hamas are awful. Easy. But what we will not do on this program is fall into this trap that the mainstream media, that politicians try to lay where you do that in order to delegitimize the Palestinian position, the Palestinian humanity, and the horror that they are under every single day. We're going to have a long conversation about this today. In a little bit, we're going to be joined uh, by Maureen Kaki, um, who is a Palestinian-American filmmaker and activist, um, to give her perspective. A little bit, we're going to be joined by our good friend Ben Burgess to talk a bit about the politics um, and some of the responses that we have seen uh, politically. I know, uh, Matt, you've had an opportunity to say a good amount on Majority Report. Uh, we also talked about this on Sunday. Um, maybe let's uh, set the stage a little bit for folks um, just going into this. Um, I just want, I know people have seen this, I want to remind people of what we are witnessing right now, which is absolutely collective punishment. Um, so we have uh, this from Defense Minister Yav um, Gallant. Um, listen to how he's talking about this uh, moment right now. Israeli defense, so I should be. I'll read for those who uh, I've ordered a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no fuel, no water, 
Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. That's what we're getting right now. Um, and absolutely. If it were just the starving of people in Gaza, uh, but by denying them electricity, food, and water, that would be a war crime enough. Um, but that is also being met with the vast bombing campaign of the area. Um, and uh, we want to be very sensitive to everyone's uh, humanity. And I think that's a very important thing uh, to do because there are graphic and heartbreaking images um, that you know we could pull up and play here. I don't have the, the stomach for it. Um, and you know you you want to be careful about how we're using these kind of things because these are human beings who are stuck into this situation. Um, I'm sure everybody saw um, one of the things that's so brutal about this conflict so far is for all the rhetoric we've been getting about monstrosity from one side, um, this is a, a video, and I'll tell you who posted in just a second, uh, celebrating some of these bombing attempts. Uh, these are bombs being dropped on Gaza. Again, where 2 million people live, and as people have been noting time and time again, um, one, in an open-air prison, and two, uh, around 50% of them are children under the age of 18. So this video was posted uh, by none other uh, than uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Um, so you want to talk about glorifications of violence and things like that. Um, these are the kind of things that are going on. Everybody has uh, noted, uh, I've probably heard, uh, the, um, the claims of Netanyahu and the Israeli government telling citizens in Gaza to get out of the way um, when, when the bombing campaign uh, struck. And look, been arguing about is this a mistranslation? Do they mean get away from you know, what quote unquote Hamas targets? Um, very clear, by the way, this is frankly indiscriminate. Um, but what's so nasty about making that argument is again, um, Gaza and Palestine do not control their own border. Um, and here is a crossing, uh, the Rafah crossing into Egypt. Uh, and let's see what was going on there as people were heeding the advice. <laughs> More bombs, more just casual death and destruction and collective punishment of a stateless people, of a people who are just regularly um, having their humanity insulted, their lives taken, their cousins' lives taken, their children's lives taken. This is an everyday reality. And we're going to talk more about some of the context in a little bit uh, with Maureen, um, but one thing that I just I think has to be set up at the front, Matt, and then and I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts here, is that a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to Palestine, particularly to Palestinians, to their voices, to their humanity, to their history. Can I just These jump in right yeah. there and mm. just say like the thing of like the we've got to really move beyond the can a nation defend itself thing because you have to follow that to its full, full conclusion of like defend itself from the people they hold in captive because of the demographic inconvenience that they represent. But sorry, mm -hmm. I, go on. No, no. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I just want to say that, you know, this doesn't come out of like a vacuum. And I, what, what is frustrating to me is like the ahistoric the ahistorical nature that this conversation is put upon. Remember in 2018, um, when there were the peaceful marches, the Great March of Return, and peaceful protesters were shot in the head by snipers. Um, remember the constant attacks, the daily attacks, the daily degradation of Palestinian people uh, that goes on. 
Um, along with the fact that in this country and in a lot of European countries and the United Kingdom, people who advocate for something like BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, the like nonviolent um, tactic, you know, uh, par excellence, right? The philosophical ideal of that, right? has effectively been made illegal across this country. Um, and people are demonized and attacked for doing that. So when you hear all these talks about tactics and all this kind of stuff, if it does not start with the demand that the occupation ends, that apartheid ends, what you are asking for is not an end to hostility, not an end to violence, but actually that it is one-sided. That actually that it, it, it continues in a way that is leading and feeling like an attempt to eradicate the Palestinians as a people. Um, and you see this not just in the physical attacks on Palestinians, on the attacks against their homes and, and, and all that, but the attacks on their culture, the attacks to deny um, Palestinians history, um, literally to deny them their food, right? There's all these attempts to reappropriate traditional Palestinian dishes um, as Israeli. That's an attempt at cultural genocide, right? That's an attempt to erase the traces of people. Um, so when you sit around and you start talking about, you know, demands for peace, I share this. I want there to be peace, 100%. That peace begins when the occupation ends. Because if you were asking for peace um, without that, what you were saying is that in, per in perpetuity, you think that Palestinians should be subjected to the daily horror, which is occupation and apartheid. Uh, yeah, I can't say it better myself. Um, and, you know, like the, the, the reality is um, there's going to be a lot of, and because, you know, the left is the humanistic side of uh, things. Um, about how to balance these sorts of things. But the truth is that the people who are callous about uh, you know, regular people being taken at gunpoint um, on the left are, you know, a few people at rallies or whatever. And on the right is Marco Rubio and, you know, uh, Aschenkloss and everybody who's justifying a bombing of Gaza um, in a way that is saying violence is the answer. That is mm -hmm. what they are saying. When you uh, unify, and you can unify with the people of Israel in uh, to an extent like uh, we have been, the way that Haaretz is saying, like this has been a failed experiment. And there's a Marxist member of uh, the Knesset, I believe was the sole one, who says we've been saying this over and over again, that this is where this is going to lead, this occupation. And that's just correct. Like, and, and you know, I mean, it's it's horrible. Uh, that it's not something to be joyous about. It's not nothing that doesn't portend well. Um, but I think like the the idea that like I mean I'm so troubled by the like the Jake Oshenklaus thing of like nobody told us to de-escalate after 9/11. Like, mm -hmm. what's the like the the main? I'm sorry, but like that that's the main political lesson that I feel like I've learned in my life is that we should have, we absolutely should have, um, and. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have the um, government of Israel, I, I think, licking its chops and bombing hospitals while you don't know that there's not necessarily even Israelis in those hospitals. Like, I, 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 the, the, the ceasefire can be accomplished by Israel mm -hmm. and to be done and called for. And Anthony Blinken tweeting a few times about ceasefires and deleting it is not going to cut it. 
And the fact is that Joe Biden's missing a moment of moral authority because the truth is America hasn't just been go Israel, dominate the Arabs. That's not actually been the role. I, I'm, as, a, as a rough low resolution uh, uh, sort of image, it's not entirely objectionable. But there's been points. Um, I remember in Ilan Papi's book um, uh, on the open air prison, like there's been points when America has exercised, told Israel, like, you don't have actual authority to do this or um you know, the ability within this community. And instead we're just getting uh, Israeli flag on the Brandenburg gate and Joe mm-hmm. Biden saying we stand with, and, it's, and it has to be both. It has to, you have to, and it has to be specifically like, like you said, like putting it on the footsteps of this occupation, because the way that like the people that are now saying like, why can't you say violence isn't the answer are allowing bombing to continue. And I mean, people's electricity to be, I mean, further pulled, <laughs> further restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. No, I mean, the, the the American role in this is incredibly brutal. And in fact, uh, we'll talk about it more with Ben, um, but we're already getting calls from Joe Biden and many members of Congress to increase uh, military aid. And let's be very clear about what that is. American money and technology and weapons being utilized to harm, kill, and maim uh, Palestinian people. Right. That's the response. All while you have this kind of loose lip talk of uh, peace. Right. Um, it's, it's it's hypocritical to its its core. Uh, it's extremely horrific. Um, and again, this is it's, as it's, Michael, sorry. Yeah. It's not encouraging terrorism to say that increased settlements and provocation of peoples you are keeping confined without political rights might have some dangerous consequences. And the treating it like that is it's infantile and it's not something we can be here for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's driving me crazy today. Well, I mean, yeah. And I, when Ben gets on, I, I want to talk more about some of the response we've seen from uh, progressives and pr- progressive po- uh, politicians talk about where this, this movement um, is. I will just say not to be, you know, doom or gloom about this kind of thing. It has been really disheartening uh, to see the kind of weakness of a lot of progressive uh, solidarity with Palestinians uh, over the past week. It's not whole, right? And we are in a better position than we even were, I, I have to say, uh, maybe in like a 2008 or something like that. Uh, but you see really clearly your fair weather friends uh, when Gaza is being bombed, when this in- inhumanity is occurring, um, and you see people unable uh, to affirm a, a position of uh, in solidarity with Palestinians. Um, but we're going to have Ben Burgess on in a minute. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we wanted to make sure that we had a Palestinian voice on this program. Uh, so we had a conversation uh, with uh, Maureen Kaki, um, who is a, uh, um, a Palestinian-American activist and filmmaker based out of San Antonio. San Antonio, that's coming up right now. And then we'll be back with Ben Burgess. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. David here. Uh, Join us always by Matt Leck. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing okay, David. Good to be with you. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tough day and a tough subject, um, but we're very honored uh, today to be joined uh, by Maureen Kaki, um, who is a, a filmmaker, Palestinian-American activist based in San Antonio. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Left Reckoning. Hey, thanks, David. Thanks, Matt. It's really good to be here with y'all, and I'm grateful to have this platform to talk about this. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's so much, and you know, there's no expectation here to like give the full holistic picture. But I was wondering if maybe, um, you know, just to sort of start us off, um, if you would feel sort of comfortable, um, you know, just sort of talking us through your reaction uh, to the events over this weekend. Um, you know, we've all been sort of watching the news, hearing the things that people have been saying in this country. Um, and I'm just curious uh, for your perspective as a Palestinian American on that. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, it's uh, I'm still processing my reaction, if I'm being totally honest with you. This has happened at a million miles a minute. And um, it's, I mean, like other people have noted, it's unprecedented. Something like this has never happened before. Um, and it's just a lot to absorb. My uh, Some of my reactions, though, I mean, um, are, I mean, shock, absolute shock, um, uh, concern for the people of Gaza, because that was one of our immediate, immediate reactions, almost every Palestinian that I spoke to. Um, it was it was a, a hesitancy and a concern for what um, Israel's reaction would be. And of course, we're seeing that play out now, and none of us are surprised, but still heartbroken at this. Um, and then there's this level of um, a, a bit of an identity crisis, right? I mean, I'm Palestinian. I, I had the opportunity, thankfully, to live in Palestine. My family's from the West Bank, but I grew up here. Um, and I can't ignore that reality. And now it feels like I, I really don't belong here. Right. Um, I'm, I mean, politicians left and right without question are sort of reacting to this in a way that just doesn't recognize Palestinian humanity, doesn't contextualize what's happening, um, in terms of 75 years of colonization and occupation. Um, and it just feels like, it feels like the response to 9-11 all over again, even though like I was young when 9-11 happened, but looking at it from, from, from this perspective and talking to people who experienced that, I, I, I sort of now understand better what they're going through and what they went through during that time and what they meant to, to sort of be pushed aside as a category of people in this country um, for the sake of somebody else's rights, right? Um, it's heartbreaking to see sanctions being applied um, on Palestinian aid almost, almost overnight when we've been advocating for sanctions against Israel because of its war crimes for years and we've been told that we are, we've been accused falsely of anti-Semitism, we've been told that we don't have that right. Um, it's, 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 it's exhausting. It's heartbreaking. It's nothing compared to what people in Gaza, um, and even in a, to a lesser extent in, in the West Bank are experiencing, but it's still, it still leaves you feeling hopeless, um, in a way. You know, I mean, I, I do really want to spend a little bit more time focusing on, on talking about the occupation and, and what's been happening in Gaza, but, you know, just to follow up on that, I mean, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it it must be extremely difficult, frankly, to you know to see the reaction that you get from politicians. Like certainly people like Joe Biden, but like you know your lo lo local city council members, uh, mayors, and things like that, taking such a, a strong statement. And you know, there you know I'll just be cynical here. I'm not expecting to get maybe a radical or revolutionary statement from a lot of these local officials. Um, but there's a way that they they talk about this issue that sort of ignores not only like Palestinians in in Palestine. But the fact that there are sizable Palestinian populations all across this country um, who are neighbors and citizens of this country as well. Absolutely. Um, and just just yesterday, I saw a piece that um, Mayor Ron Nirenberg in San Antonio and uh, Congressman Joaquin Castro attended an event to stand in solidarity with Israel. And, and it's sort of like 
what does that mean? Um, because we knocked at Ron Mayor, uh, Mayor Nirenberg's office, and he came to one of our masjids, our local mosques, and spoke about why he should be reelected and how he'd look out for the Muslim community here. And we questioned him then about his stances on BDS and San Antonio's friendship city with Tel Aviv, and it was to deafening silence, right? He did the whole thing in public about, oh, I'll talk to you after the fact, here's my card, talk to my office, and we'll get together. And then just completely, uh, after he was elected, completely just ignored us, right? And we tried speaking to um, the city about the friendship city with, with, with Tel Aviv again, and this exchange of cybersecurity and stuff like that, That it, and, and water. Um, the fact that we study Israeli water practices is so wrong when Israel actively denies Palestinians water, like settlers can have full pools, and Gaza doesn't have water to drink. And this has been true before this weekend, right? Um, and this was not new. This was not something that was unanticipated. The UN released a, a report about that. And this has been ignored by our city officials. Joaquin Castro was the same thing. We knocked on, and I'm not particularly a fan of congressional advocacy as a means for like immediate and just change, right? I don't think that's the most effective way to do that. Um, but even then, we took that step because we felt it was one of the few things that we had at our disposal as Palestinians living in the United States to challenge, right? And we attempted to speak to their office, and they all ignored us. And they all ignored us. And now, for them to come out and talk about this as unprovoked and talk about this as a unilateral condemnation is just so, is so devoid. Again, it's so devoid of context. It's so devoid of history. It's so one-sided. And it's so, it's bottom line is racist, right? When, when, when Palestinians um, have died since, so how many Palestinians, 5,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since 2008. And not once did any of these people say anything about standing with Palestine or recognizing our humanity. And now it's become a situation where, oh, this is Israel's 9-11. Well, what, what about Gaza that lives this every day? And what about your constituents who have tried to talk to you about these things and to, to deaf ears? It's, it's, it's incredibly disappointing. It leaves you, I mean, if I, if I feel that hopeless here in, in the United States where we have these, we have certain luxuries and freedoms that are not accessible to people in Gaza because of Israel, then I can't imagine how hopeless they feel there. Well, I mean, let, let, let's talk about this a, a little bit because, um, you know, uh, you know, our, our audience is pretty well versed, um, you know, in, in, in this, in this topic in general, but, you know, you, you, or you talk to a lot of different folks and, you know, when you're talking to people, I think that one thing that you sort of is striking about like the, the conflict is that people sort of sometimes imagine it as like a symmetrical one, right? It's just like two groups of people. They just, you know, only they could just get along and be friends, um, you know, which is, you know, it's obviously it's incredibly insulting, but you see that all the time. Um, and in, in the way a lot of people talk, I mean, could you talk a, a bit about this asymmetry, like, and, and like certainly about like the military force, but I mean, like daily life in Gaza is very different um, from daily life, uh, certainly in like Tel Aviv, but also very different from the settlers and, 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 and people who are um, coming into the area. I mean, so could you sort of paint the picture for somebody who might not be as well versed um, in, in the subject? Sure. Yeah, thank you for that question, because um, it's an important emphasis that also is part of the context that absolutely should be mentioned, like mentioned, whether you quote unquote stand with Israel or not, whatever that means. Um, but I'll, I'll break it down in different sections because um, there are different levels of sort of not privilege, but there are different levels uh, that, that there are different ways that Palestinians are impacted by Israeli apartheid. So um, there are Palestinians both in what I call 48 Palestine, which is quote unquote the state of Israel, um, occupied Palestine. 
Um, and they are Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, and although they have citizenship in, under Israel, they are still relegated to ghettos within 48 Palestine. Um, they pay taxes, uh, local and national, that they don't see the benefits from because their schools are not well kept, their roads are not well kept. Again, water is regulated in these areas. They face racist attacks, right? Um, so that's what life is like for people in 48. And then in the West Bank and Gaza, what is what are supposed to be like the basis of, of sort of the two-state solution um, or the two-state proposal, as I like to refer to it, um, is uh, is different, right? Palestine, let's start by the fact that Palestine is stateless. We may reference this entity called Palestine, but there is technically no state of Palestine because Israel has refused, refused to allow one to exist, despite multiple members, including of the PLO and the Palestinian Authority, willing to recognize the state of Israel, but Israel would not allow the same, right? So there is no Palestinian state. Um, and I, one of the points I can't overemphasize enough is that there is no such thing as a Palestinian military. There is no organized sort of arms. Um, what people see in terms of uh, attacks or, or certain things carried out by um, by armed resistance is their militia groups, right? There's there's no central organizing force under which Palestinians can gather. There's no military to aid. There's no F-16s. There's no tanks. There's no any of that. Palestinians in the West Bank um, live under Israeli control. They are all under Israeli military law. Um, and they are subject to 560 checkpoints within the West Bank that are that are there permanently, and on top of that, there are 1,500 flying checkpoints or pop-up checkpoints that can appear. Um, they'll also blockade villages um, with these huge cement blocks. Just stick them at the front of villages that are nearby cities, and older folks who would need to travel to go get supplies for, or whatever from the main city can no longer leave their village, right? Um, on top of that, Palestinians who were uh, ethnically cleansed from 48 are living often in the West Bank um, in refugee camps. In Gaza, 80% of the population is refugees, right? Um, in Gaza in particular, they experience the worst conditions. There has been a blockade. Gaza has been under siege for 16 years. Israel regulates electricity. They regulate the borders by air, land, and sea. Um, you cannot leave Gaza unless you are issued a special permit by the Israeli government. Um, and oftentimes that's not granted, even in extreme cases, even in medical, um, life-saving medical need cases, this, this is often not granted. And the fact, even if it were, the fact that Palestinians have to go through the Israeli government to be able to access land that was historically theirs, they still have the keys to, is just wrong. Morally, ethically, legally, it's all wrong. Um, and so the asymmetry here, never mind, this is just what the conditions of life are like, right? Meanwhile, settlers, and there are over 500,000 settlers in the West Bank, and this number just continues to grow um, despite international law held, despite in, uh, American policy up until the Trump administration, settlements were, were, were considered wrong even by, by the United States. And yet... The settlements continue to grow, and that involves demolishing Palestinian homes in order to build settlements for, for Jewish settlers who can come from anywhere in the world. They may not have any historical attachment to Palestine, and yet they are paid to live in these settlements by the Israeli government. And the way this happens, if it's not a demolished Palestinian home, what will happen is... Uh, 
settlers will create an outpost. So they'll bring this like shipping container and plop it on top of this mountain or whatever in between Palestinian villages in the West Bank. And it's technically even, that outpost is technically even illegal under the Israeli government. And yet Israeli utilities will give them electricity. So once they get electricity, they bring a few more shipping containers, a few more um, ultra-nationalist settlers, and then the construction on a settlement starts. And Palestinians are the ones building these settlements because they are so economically suffocated by the Israeli occupation that they don't have any other place to work. So it's it's another layer of, of just sort of despicable, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what you would call that, right? Like, it's just, it's just disgusting. Um, it's disgusting. And it's, it's, it's horrifying. Um, I mean, imagine having to build the homes for people who are taking over your land. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom what it takes to do that. So while, while Palestinians are living in all of these conditions, Israeli settlers, um, <laughs> will still commit acts of violence against neighboring Palestinians. Uh, and when you move to a settlement in Israel, you're not just paid to be there, but you're also armed by the Israeli government. You're issued rifles, and you are allowed to carry those rifles around. And if you threaten Palestinians, or if you commit violence against Palestinians as an Israeli settler, you actually cannot be stopped by the IDF, by the Israeli military. The Israeli military can only protect the settlers, even if they are causing harm to Palestinians. Settlers are only regulated by the Israeli police, the Shin Be'ath, and not the IDF. So it's just another, it's just another way that Israel makes sure about, of the erasure of Palestinians, of the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, of the violence, ensures the violence against them, right? And meanwhile, Israel is a nuclear superpower, and we're not talking about just in the context of its neighbors. We're talking about the fact that Israel is a global superpower. The U.S. has sent the largest tanker they have to the eastern Mediterranean in support of Israel. They've sent F-16s, F-55, some of the most sophisticated military equipment that we see, and Palestinians have access to none of this. Right. Prior to the, what we saw this weekend, most of Hamas's rockets were sort of bottle rockets and they were largely ineffectual and they were useful for propaganda campaigns for Israel, to be quite honest. I don't know if that's that was too much on the asymmetry, but that, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, it's really important. I mean, we had uh, um, Basil Azra on the on the program over the summer, um, who's from Masveriata, uh, um, you know, and, and one of the things that he was talking about um, was not even having the ability to like build infrastructure like water pipes without um you know israel's approval so when you have like the israeli uh, court system or these kind of so-called scholars talking about like well look you know these people um don't really have a claim for land look they haven't built a lot of things on there well they're, they're literally not allowed um and right. that, that's denied uh, by by the state of israel all the while you know they're building up uh the these incredible uh you know bits of infrastructure for settlers um, I mean, it, it, I, I just, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm harping on this, but like, I just really want the audience to understand that so much of the time when we're talking about asymmetry, like it's very much conflict in military and which is absolutely true. And I think that's an important point to make, but it's just, it's also life. It's literally, it's just like, you live a very different life if you're a Palestinian versus an Israeli settler. Um, and it's, they're just not even comparable. Um, I, w I wanted to talk a little bit, um, about. Unless you had something, Matt. Sorry if I could. Yeah, you I mean, before we, if you're going to move, before we move domestically, I'm curious about your perspectives on, you know, people say the two state solution or one state solution. Like, my understanding of the one state solution is Israel doesn't want that because of demographic reality about what it would mean to give uh, Palestinians political rights. But I'm just curious what your perspective is on the, the different proposals. 
Yeah, I mean, the two-state proposal is just kind of silly at this point. Um, it's, anybody who's paid any mind to the to, to what's happened in Palestine, um, even for the last couple years, um, on even for the last 30 days, what am I talking about, um, would know that this is just fundamentally not a reality on the ground. Again, um, I think it's an unethical proposal. I think, again, that to... to the way that the state of Israel was established was by by violent means, right? By ethnically cleansing 750,000 Palestinians from their homes. And so the idea of even conceding any of that territory um, is bizarre to me. Like, nobody else in history would be expected to concede territory like that. Americans certainly wouldn't, right? Um, so I don't know why we would expect Palestinians to, even if it happened 75 years ago. Um, there are people still alive who lived through that, right? So it's not even that long ago in the context of global history. And and certainly not in the context for how long Palestinians have been on that land. Um, so, yeah, and on that front, it's just kind of silly, but also just from a pragmatic perspective, and, and other scholars and, and um, people much smarter than me have, have done this subject much better, uh, much more justice, but... Um, the, the reality is, is that Israel never wanted a two-state solution, right? Again, the, the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, um, who, is, who is very much not representative of the Palestinian people, not of the Palestinian spirit, and not the way that Palestinians think in the collective at the moment, um, even he conceded to recognizing the state of Israel and has talked about wanting to live with peace in Israel, and he's gotten nothing for it in return. Not even uh, not even a show of, of an exchange that, that a two-state would be possible. Right. And on top of that, Israel's continued settlements make that impossible. So assuming that the two state solution were actually even viable, because at this point, even based on 67 borders, it's discontinuous, which is just somebody work out how that would work for me and for Palestinians. Right. Like, what would you do? You need to fly from Gaza to the West Bank to, to be in your state. That's bizarre. Right. And over over Israel to do it. Um, that's just not feasible. And so and the fact that Israel just keeps grabbing more and more land in the West Bank, they're not going to exchange those settlements back soon, really, anytime soon. So they've ruled out that possibility. Even if you were advocating for a two-state solution, Israel has made it impossible. You, you know, um, it's fine if you can't get into this, but I'm curious, you know, your, your perspective too, like, you know, um, on, like on the ground, um, people's relationships to maybe something like Hamas or PLO, because uh, you know, I think that that's another thing too is that like it, it could be sometimes hard to talk about uh, Palestinian society in, in in these broad terms. You know, who are these groups representing? And also, I think it's important for people maybe to recognize um, like different power centers, right? There's like like community power, and then there's also kind of like international agency power in Palestine. And I know that's a big question, but if you have any thoughts or insight you'd like to share on that, um, we'd appreciate it. And sorry, just to clarify, you mean like the way that different Palestinians feel about it or just talk about the distinctions between these? Yeah, I mean, you could talk about the distinctions or how people, you know, might might think about it, which I know is like very broad. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that like, you know, people know like the PLO, they know Hamas, right? Um, right. As like different institutions. And I think sometimes there's a confusion as to who's being represented by these different groups, maybe some of the recent history um, around them uh, that might be helpful for people to understand when we're having these kind of conversations uh, after what happened over the weekend. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, to be queer, so both, both uh, all the, the sort of groups that we're talking about, the PLO, PA, um, Hamas, these are all political entities, right? These are these are political groups um, who claim they were democratically elected. That's not, that's fundamentally not true. Mahmoud Abbas has been in power um, for as long as I can remember, um, and that was certainly not democratic. Uh, Hamas was elected in, in Gaza and has maintained power, um, and I don't, I couldn't honestly tell you... Um, based on personal experience, what Ghazans think of Hamas um, in, in general. I can tell you that Hamas is a political entity, and this is Hamas is separate um, from the Al-Qassam Brigades who carried out the attack that we saw this past weekend. Um, they are, they're an entity within the political entity known as Hamas, but still these are two distinct, um, I don't even know what, what you would call them at that point. One is a political entity, the other one is a, a militant force. And so, um, by and large, I've seen um, I've seen people be very, um, disappointed with Hamas, right? Um, and then, but, uh, I, I mean, the thing about Hamas, too, is that they don't really have power. Um, again, this is, this is the political entity of two million people and confined to three million, or three square kilometers, excuse me, three square miles. Uh, and, and, they they don't have much control realistically, right? Uh, and and moreover, Hamas is an entity that people like to point to Hamas as if Hamas is the core of this problem. And Hamas may be a problem for Palestinians too. But the the important thing to remember is that Hamas didn't appear until 1987. Hamas was absolutely a result of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. If Israel doesn't want Hamas to exist, they can cease their occupation of, and colonization of Palestine. It's that simple. And they've known that, right? This is not new. Um, the PLO was, began as a resistance organization um, in the first Intifada, I think before, and and has continued as a sort of political group, yes, but has become much more benign over the years, right? Um, and significantly less radical. And, and less resistant. Um, and so, and the PLO uh, and, and the Palestinian Authority are what govern the West Bank, and Hamas is who governs the Gaza Strip, just for additional context. And those two political groups are certainly not in agreement with each other. Um, and again, they are, they are devoid, they do not represent the Palestinian people um, by and large, but that's, that's who they are, um, if that helps. No, I, I really appreciate this. And I know that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors in history going on there, but I think these, these being able to wrestle with those tensions is, is something that's really important. I mean, in, in the last bit of, of, of the conversation, um, I'm not going to sit here and, and ask you to give advice on tactics or anything like that. Um, but I do think that, uh, particularly in, in, in the U S, um, you know, there certainly needs to be one in understanding that like, this is not just an event that's happening far away, um, that maybe affects some of our friends and neighbors. This is something that America plays a role in. Um, and I, I want, you know, and, and what's frustrating to me about these conversations is it's like, there can be this general conversation that just sort of ignores history. And it's like, okay, let's talk like philosophically about how people can do things and things like that. I was just wondering if, if you could sort of talk about, uh, you know, the struggle in, in this country uh, to be supportive of, of Palestine, you know, through things like BDS and like the legal challenges and the threats and the difficulty that comes in the United States of America to advocate again for an end to an occupation, for an end of apartheid, for freedom and self-determination for people. Um, you know, it's it's been something that's been in, in ridiculous, like very frighteningly um, uh, increasing in this country, how difficult it is to advocate uh, for these things. And now we're starting to see like states and governments and, and big powerful institutions weigh in and put their finger on the scale one way or the other. 
Right, right. And this is one of the, this is another aspect that absolutely requires context. Um, people will talk about how they, you know, support nonviolent resistance. Um, but that's not true in the United States because Palestinians pushed like hell to advocate nonviolence resistance through the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which was modeled off of the, um, BDS movement that um, drove the end of apartheid in South Africa. And so Palestinians looked to that as a model, but as soon as the movement started to gain some real traction, it was criminalized and condemned left and right, right? Like in Texas, it became illegal to boycott the state of Israel. Um, and Texas was one of 26 states that passed this condemnation or, or you know, actual law, making it illegal, requiring penalties. Um, and for the film that I had worked on, I'd interviewed two folks who had, one of them was a, they were actually both contractors in different capacity with, um, state and local respectively, um, entities. One of them was a school teacher and the other one was a, um, a, the head of an engineering firm that did contract uh, with the city of Houston to do construction. And when he got his last contract to get renewed, it, it included a clause that asked him not to boycott the state of Israel. And this man is from Gaza. He was raised in Gaza. He left and came to school here when he was a teenager. And he told them, I absolutely refuse. And so he sued um, with the help of the Council of American Islamic Relations, known as CARE. Um, and it was after Bahia Amawi's case, who was the school teacher who also refused to sign re, uh, to sign the statement in her contract that said she would refuse to boycott Israel. Um, and so what happened when these lawsuits came to two, the state of Texas initially required that people couldn't just generally couldn't boycott the state of Israel. When Bahia Amawi's case challenged that in the courts, the state then revised the law to where it was up to a certain, if your contract was worth up to a certain amount, meaning that it was larger companies rather than individuals that were affected by this now. And that's when Rasmia Hasuna, the engineer in Houston, had challenged that case. And then he, he, he was successful in his case, but once again, Texas amended the law to, to, to find loopholes that would still criminalize boycotts in some capacity, right? So now organizations like universities can't, can't pass, um, uh, sanctions, a divestment resolution in support of Palestine. So it's, it's kind of absurd in a country where we talk about freedom and we praise things like the constitution when like every fourth grader knows that Americans are supposedly guaranteed the right to boycott under the first amendment. And yet here Palestinians are proceeding nonviolently trying to push this in, in the states and we're being told by by elected officials and, and lawmakers that we no longer can do that, right? And beyond the boycotts, uh, the criminalization of boycotts, it's even this conflation, it's gone to like a culture war uh, now, mm -hmm. right? Um, you have the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, also known as the IHRA, that put out a definition which is a Zionist leading organization based on the fact that they put out a uh, definition of anti-Semitism that falsely equates anti-Zionist work with anti-Semitism. And my, my university, um, the University of Texas San Antonio, um, has, has adopted this, this definition of anti-Semitism. The state of Texas has passed sort of resolutions recognizing this as a valid definition. And this is, this is nonsense. Like human rights organizations will tell you it's wrong. There are anti-Zionist Jews who will tell you that it's wrong. The idea that you can, can, can the entire global population of Jewish people with the state of Israel that has only existed for 75 years and through violent means is absurd. 
it's 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 the equivalent of saying that every Muslim, um, I don't know, belongs to to Saudi Arabia. Like that's just fundamentally not true. It may be a Muslim country, but it's not it's not the representation of all Muslims around the world. And the same goes for Israel, right? So even when we've tried to advocate in our terms for ourselves and use education as a means of resistance, we've been prevented from doing that. And it becomes harder and harder. Like, cause you, you think about writing when, as a student, I think about when I'm, uh, I was writing for, for grant proposals. I was like, how much can I, can I own my Palestinian identity before that becomes a risk for me in this particular situation? Right? Like, that's something that other people don't have to think about. And just by mentioning the work that I've done, I either take out my work and make my resume look blank, or I reframe it in some like sort of reformist, liberal, acceptable language that erases the reality of what I've experienced and what people back home experience on the regular. Or I, I risk not being palatable enough for for whoever's reviewing it, right? And I mean, this was the, again like this is just the the stories I could share with you about the attempts, the amount of times that I was. Like I was reported at my university simply for the advocacy work that we do as, as being anti-religious, as being anti-Semitic. When we took deep, deep care to always make the distinction between Judaism and Zionism. Like, yeah. And, and I'll just say we had a Heather Mendick on to talk about the Jeremy Corbyn stuff with that definition. And I mean, just today, Bill Ackman, a billionaire, uh, responding to a number of uh, groups at Harvard who signed a list um, and I'll just read what Bill Ackman says. I have been asked by a number of CEOs if Harvard would release a list of the members of each of the Harvard organizations that have issued the letter assigning sole responsibility for Hamas's heinous attack to Israel so as to ensure that none of us inadvertently hire any of their members. And I'll say, like, those kids who signed that, um, I give a lot of shit to Ivy League. Those kids are heroic. And, like, that sort of... Um, uh, uh, I mean, it's just like, it's very, and, and also they're not saying anything that Haaretz wasn't saying in an editorial, right? And that's what also like can't be lost on this. No, absolutely. That's a fantastic point. Um, when we had flyers, like somebody came onto our campus when I was an undergrad and had spewed a bunch of anti-Semitic nonsense about um, Palestinians, SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, and the Muslim Student Organization. I mean, it was like vile, um, Islamophobic, anti-Palestinian rhetoric. And the university didn't even so much as like, they, they dealt with it in a certain way, but very, very quietly. And then when stuff happens now, they're, they're releasing statements in support of Israel. And it's just, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. You almost have to ask yourself, like, am I really, am I insane? Am I losing my mind here? Like, there's that, there's that sort of guilt and doubt and fear that, that Palestinians have to work through one way or another, just trying to simply exist and advocate, right? So it's this question of like, why haven't you advocated? We have, we've tried every, every means available to us. And yet every time we think we can get an inch closer, there's a new way that that's somehow criminalized or condemned, right? Like Eric Adams doesn't want people marching in the streets of New York in support of Palestine. Right. Like that's that's crazy. When have we ever when have we when have when have you ever seen a liberal politician otherwise condemned just marching in the street? There wasn't like it wasn't a, a question of were they were they disruptive or anything like that, um, which is a whole other conversation. It was just a question of them supporting Palestinians and, and people in Gaza who are currently experiencing bombardment thanks to the Israeli regime. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I just wanted to ask you in, in, in closing, because I do think it's it's like kind of frightening and, 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 and bizarre thing that, um, 
It seems like the American line of what is acceptable when talking about this conflict um, is even harder sometimes than what you see in Israel. Like, I'm not saying that Israel's open up and becoming more liberal or anything like that. But again, like, you know, if you're reading in like Haaretz, things that would be condemned if they were put out by an American publication or American organization. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what your maybe to close your general thoughts on this, because I think in our lifetime, we have seen um, growing support, particularly from young people, some political organizations and movements being more willing to talk about Palestine. Um, but I don't want to be um, a bummer or anything here. But like this past weekend has really um, shocked me to see how strong um, some of that stuff is, which is great, but also how shallow some of those people who sort of seem to be on our side and are now very quick uh, to sort of turn their backs. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious um, if, you, if you have any thoughts about, you know, where things stand in, in the U.S. here. Um, after what we've seen over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really surprising when you look at the way that media has handled this, right? Like, as of yesterday, um, Yusuf Monayid, who is a professor and former executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, tweeted um, about not having a single American journalist, whether CNN, Fox, MSNBC, CBS, in Gaza. Like, the BBC has journalists in Gaza, Al Jazeera has journalists in Gaza. There's not a single American journalist reporting live from Gaza. And they could claim it's a safety issue, but they've also been there before. Right. Like this is not this. this how how are you supposed how are you supposed to tell the perspective yet they're, they're sitting in, in Tel Aviv. Right. So they get really one sided perspectives. And I think I don't, I don't know that. I think it's a really good point that you brought up, David, that that, you know, there there are Israeli newspapers that would report a little bit more context than American media has. And I think that maybe because. They've also seen the undeniable truths that they can't, like, they, they've seen anti-Arab racism. They've seen the way that settlers have stood as Gaza was getting bombed in the past and, and sat there with popcorn and beer and cheered on. And to some extent, you can't deny that, right? There's there's Israeli human rights organizations, um, and notably B'Tselem, which is um, made up of former... Um, Israeli Defense Forces soldiers who uh, regret their actions or, or refuse to join, but talk about their experiences in the IDF and the horrible things they did and saw. And so th these things exist there. And meanwhile, the people doing this work here are primarily Palestinian um, and, and not again, they're just not part of the status quo, right? We're not, we're not considered um, of a, uh, uh, an acceptable news source about our own lived experience. We're considered biased, right? Mm -hmm. um, Oh, I think that, yeah, which is ridiculous. Um, frankly, I will just say that. Um, but, uh, Maureen, I really appreciate, um, you taking some time to join us on such short notice. Um, um, is there anything else that, that you might want to add or, um, really appreciate uh, you taking the time and, you know, talking with us a little bit? Yeah. I just want to say thanks again, um, for having me, Matt and David. It's been a, it's been, I mean, a pleasure is, is hard to say. Um, not much has been pleasurable over, over the past few days, but it really is. Um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to just engage with this, um, beyond such a, a simplistic one-sided in you know, level, um, which is, seems to be the majority of the way that people are engaging with this in media. Um, so I'm just really grateful that y'all are, y'all are providing that platform. And I just want to emphasize that Palestinians are also not a monolith. Um, the, the, the voices who should be uplifted the most, which is going to be the hardest to hear from right now are the people in Gaza, right? They have, they have experienced suffering, um, for as long as 
as long as they have been relegated to, to that open-air prison. And what we're seeing now in Gaza is unlike anything we've ever seen before, and they've lived through some horrible things. And so I would ask, uh, as much as you can, please uplift the voices of Gazans, um, uh, make sure their stories are seen and heard to the extent that they can be, and, and just take your time to learn. Um, there are a lot of fantastic books, articles, and Palestinian perspectives. Certainly mine is not the only one that you should be hearing from, um, and I would implore you to, to learn from others. Again, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Welcome back, everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very thankful uh, that uh, Maureen took some time to speak with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, very uh, eloquent under you know difficult circumstances, as you know, so many people are. Um, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, one hundred percent. <clears throat> well, uh, we got uh, somewhat, we're having a double header. Usually we do one, uh, but today we're digging deep and uh, we're going to bring on our good friend and comrade. You know him, you love him from Give Them an Argument, Jacobin Magazine, also Forever TMBS Crew, our good friend, Mr. Ben Burgess. How are you doing? Hey, David. How are you? Oh, yeah, I was actually just thinking about TMBS earlier today because, uh, you know, I, I just wrote this article for Jacobin about the backlash to Cory Bush and Rashida Tlaib for saying correct things uh, about Palestine. And I got to thinking, and it's like, I don't know if you guys remember the first episode I was ever on in studio for, uh, for TMBS was the uh, Stand with Ilhan. Oh, really? Oh, for real? <laughs> yeah. I actually went back and checked today to make sure I was remembering that right. You know, it's like, yeah, now I'm pretty sure that was the first one. Oh, man. Yeah, that was uh, right when uh, in like a January or something like that. And uh, I believe Ilhan had said the, the thing uh, about APAC, about mm -hmm. Benjamins being influential in lobbying power. And uh, the entire Democratic caucus, for, uh, um, Nancy Pelosi, Hakeem Jeffries, the current leader of the House, uh, you know, everybody condemned her as anti-Semitic. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. all great because we've all that's clearly not come up in any sort of election since their influence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and it's just it's also just amazing that it's like, uh, I mean, just imagine if some like somehow there was some piece of empirical evidence, some report or something saying that all the money that APAC spent actually had zero impact on uh, the behavior of politicians. Like imagine what mm -hmm. an internal crisis that would be. Like if they actually found that out, it's like, Oh no, it turns <laughs> out we're not having any influence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <no. laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, Ben, as you know, and I, I know you've been talking about it on, on your program and you've written about for Jack Ben, um, you know, this, this horrific uh, news of what's happening in Gaza um, we want to bring you on. I mean, also just a reminder, folks, Ben will be hanging out with us for a little bit. We're going to be going to the post game after this conversation, patreon.com slash left reckoning to talk a little bit more in depth. Um, but you know, uh, I just wanted to sort of open it up to you, Ben, before, cause I, I really want to spend some time with you talking about the politicians and some of the response and, you know, domestic stuff regarding, regarding this issue. But I'm just the curious if you wanted to say anything, um, up top, uh, on, on the crisis in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess. I just think the top line thing, you know, there's a lot of other stuff besides this to say, but like the top line thing has to be that um, 
that anybody who's treating what's happened in the last few days as if the relevant history started on Saturday mm-hmm. um, is is just lying to you or 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 has like a earnestly blinkered view of the world. I mean this this is just a this is just a crazy way to interact with with history with you know with what's going on um as if even the last few months of of context were were irrelevant and uh and it's like the clock really just starts with those Hamas incursions uh over the over the weekend and I've been saying a lot of that and it's like I think that's it, it sounds really basic, but I think that more than anything is what we need to push back against. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, like the, the, the like the invocation of nine eleven is so crazy, but especially like there is a way. Yeah, okay. What do we learn yeah. from that? Right, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, but the thing is, like, there, there, there is like the media environment should be better now. Like, I see different like cross uh, religious uh, groups coming together and saying, stop this now. Haaretz is saying the blame for this uh, lies at the door of the government. Like imagine if the New York times uh, said that about after nine, uh, nine on September 12th, like, right. Like th- there's, there is a way forward here and to see like certain uh, uh, to see like, I mean, Fetterman's uh, statement was just like, yeah, go get the tanks, you know, roll through. Yeah, like no, see, unconditional. The disconnect yeah. there is Which just is, wild. Yeah, I actually, I'd written during the election, I wrote an article for Jacobin called, I think it was called uh, John Fetterman is right about many things, but he's wrong about Palestine. And I remember how much shit I got about that uh, from a lot of leftists who were like mad that, uh, that I was, you know, criticizing Fetterman during the election and all this stuff. And, um, and it's, it's just, you know, it's just really wild how it's like what whatever, you know, whatever's going on that second, right, is the only thing that people can focus on, right? So it's like, oh, well, the only thing that matters is, I don't know, beating Dr. Oz in that election. And it's like, no, <laughs> guys, you can hold more than one thought in your head here. Look, Dr. Oz would have been good for business as, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll go with Fetterman because he's better on labor, but Dr. Oz, for me personally, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, no, he would have been, that would have been much funnier for sure. But, like, look, I, I don't, you know, but it's like ultimately, it's like, no, I want to, I think it's important to maintain an independent perspective, right? It's like, look, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, if I lived in Pennsylvania, I would have voted for him, as you say, is better on labor, or whatever. But it's like, it's like, no, I don't work for the Fetterman campaign. I work for Jacobin, right? I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna say things that are true, you know, when they come up. Um, but, but yeah, the Fetterman thing was really bad. I mean, there's, there's been a range. Uh, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, but you know, it is as, as I saw David saying earlier in your program. I mean, it's the, the overall. You know the overall thing is much better, you know, than it had been. But uh, you know, like you know, David said, two thousand eight. I mean, I would say even two thousand eighteen, right? That mm-hmm. the uh, that you know that uh, there are there is more dissent, you know, from within Congress than that there would have been uh, even then. But uh, but yeah, I mean that that going back to that nine eleven analogy, I mean, it's like I don't know. It, it's really funny hearing in that direction too. Because I can vividly remember on 9-11, uh, I was in my college dorm room, uh, and I remember passing by the TV. It was like CNN. There was like, I don't know, Harold Kushner or somebody like that was on uh, was on TV. And he and I remember him saying, we're all Israelis now. 
you know, and there was like a lot of that going around then. It's like, oh no, see now Americans know what it's like, you know, and now the analogy is just being traded back in the other direction, yeah. right? You know, that that's that's oh the well, this is their 9-11. It's like, okay, well, how about our 9-11? How about the American 9-11? So let's talk about this, because um when people say, I don't know if you guys saw, there was uh Ed Markey was uh was yes. at a uh event and you know he said he didn't get the he was off you know he was off script you know he didn't get the memo he said uh, he said something about de-escalation uh mm-hmm. or ceasefire and yeah. he got all kinds of backlash for that and like one of the later speakers at the same event said oh nobody was telling us to de-escalate on 9-11 and all i could think is man i wish they had right mm-hmm. like think about everything that happened since 9-11 and how awful that was obviously for millions of people who live in the middle east but even for the u.s uh how awful that was it's like is that really like have people just done the like men in black memory wipe on that where they have uh, where it's like no that's like what i remember from 9 11 is they you know is that we went into the middle east and we kicked their asses and it had like only good consequences mm-hmm. right and, and i mean it's so similar like i mean marky you know great for marky because like that, the, the comparison is very, like, I understand the want to unite as a people when people sure. have been attacked, um, right? But that involves Bibi Netanyahu. And we all know it is a matter of public record, Netanyahu and Israeli government's complicity in creating these conditions, particular generally with regards to the occupation, particularly with Hamas. And so like, mm-hmm. you can't unite, you can't just say like, yeah, unite because you're uniting with that guy. <laughs> and, and just with a redoubling down at a moment of extreme embarrassment for him, that should be understood as such. Yeah. I mean, there have been these months of, uh, there were, you know, of uh, these unprecedentedly massive uh, protests and uh, strikes uh, within Israel, you know, from not from people who agree with us, but like from within like the Zionist mainstream of Israeli society uh, because of Netanyahu's, you know, corruption and, uh, and his, and his power grab that, uh, you know, this, he had this whole scheme to uh to disempower the the courts and i would just say like that seemed very disconnected and i'm sure to the vast majority of protesters it was very disconnected right that you know most i think if we're gonna be real about this most of the people going to those protests don't care about the palestinians you know i mean they, they just cared about democracy being eroded for them but um but i think that the larger context there why was he doing that uh that power grab uh people i always recommend people read uh 972 magazine uh which Mm -hmm. is a magazine that's put out by uh some palestinian and also israeli journalists uh who are opposed to uh the you know apartheid uh system that they they have there and if you read their coverage about it from earlier this year i mean i think something they were very good on is like look the the long-term agenda for the reason that he wanted to weaken the court system is uh, is precisely because he had this agenda to outright annex big chunks of the West Bank. Um, and related to that, earlier this year, there was uh, like really huge escalation in settler violence uh, that was backed up by the Israeli army. I mean, to the point that there's like a big stretch of the West Bank where most of the Palestinians who live there uh, have, have fled uh, this year. Like this is, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, 
it's not, it would even, it would be bad enough if it was just like what had been going on this year was mm-hmm. just what had been going on kind of throughout 2022 and 2021 and 2020, which is to say that there's this permanent occupation on uh, the West Bank, that the freedom of movement is very restricted for people who, uh, who live there, uh, that, you know, Gaza is essentially, as you guys have said, um, is essentially a large prison camp, um, that all of this would be bad enough. And by the way, also the last few years escalating discrimination against Palestinian citizens uh, within Israel since they passed, you know, it was called, you know, like there's something called the nation state law. That's like, everybody has to affirm that this is, you know, particular Jewish state. So that would all be bad enough, but it's like, no, that's not it. I mean, there have been like all of these pretty extreme escalations in what, you know, what was going in the way that the occupation was conducted that led up to this. And in fact, this is a big part of the reason that this happened, both in the sense that it's part of the context for the sort of tit for tat violence uh, that's that, you know, that we saw an explosion off this weekend, but also in the sense, and this is some of what Haaretz is talking about, that uh, Bibi Netanyahu like had really was asleep at the wheel on the Gaza stuff because he was so focused on the West Bank where the you know Israeli military was harassing Palestinians, was backing up these settler pogroms. Um that, you know, I mean, there are some reports, I guess we don't know for sure, but you know, he got in pretty direct warnings that something was about to boil over in a big way. Uh, from Gaza that he'd, he'd ignored, you know, that's, that's what there's an Egyptian official, you know, says that he warned him. Um, and even beyond that, uh, this is like 2019. I saw Haaretz posted this too. They, uh, there was, uh, there was like a meeting with uh, Likud party Knesset members uh, where Bibi said, uh, if you don't want a Palestinian state, it's really important in order to like marginalize, you know, Fatah, right. The faction that runs the, Palestinian run parts of the West Bank, that it's really important to prop up Hamas, right? That this is part of our strategy. And like, this is, uh, it's, it's almost unbelievable that this stuff is a matter of public record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know much about this, uh, Ofer Kassif, the, uh, Marxist member of the Knesset? Uh, I, I, I don't, which, uh, yeah, which, he, which party he just is had this, uh, well, here's uh, this uh, Seamus uh, Malik, Malik Fasali uh, posted uh, uh, oh, yes. Kassif, Hadash, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of Hadash. I don't know. Um, but this, this statement um, seems pretty extraordinary to me. Um, uh, we condemn and oppose any assault on uh, innocent civilians, but in contrast to the Israeli government, that means we oppose any assault on Palestinian civilians as well. We must analyze those terrible incidents in the right context, and that is the ongoing occupation. And, you know, he continues. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I know a little, just a little bit. I mean, Hadash is a, um, it's a joint effort by some Arab parties. Basically, what had been the Israeli Communist Party is like part of you know part of that, right? So that this is like probably about as good as you know, like probably politically is is about as good as you're going to get for you know for a party and. you know, in the Knesset. So yeah, I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen some of what they put out about this and that's, this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is absolutely right. And it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, it might be kind of grimly hilarious to, to compare like 
how much sentiments like that have been expressed by members of the Knesset versus members of the U.S. Congress, mm. right? Yeah, I mean, well, exactly. Well, well, on that note, I think programmatically, this is what we're going to do, folks. Um, we're going to go through some of these uh, political responses. We're going to talk Joe Biden. We're going to talk Bernie. We're going to talk AOC. We're going to talk some of the better statements that we've seen from people like uh, Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush. We're going to talk a little bit about the left and some of the in the U.S. and some of the things that we've seen. Uh, but we're going to do that over in the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning to get access to that. Um, we'll also be taking some questions and calls from listeners there. So if you want to join us uh, for that second part of the conversation, join us over there at patreon.com slash left reckoning. I'll be there. Matt will be there. And Ben Burgess has been very gracious with his time. He'll be hanging out with us uh, for a little bit of that as well. Um, so uh, we'll be over there in just, uh, I think, 10 minutes or so, folks. Um, so yep. jump over and we'll see you in just a second. And Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the public side and looking forward to doing it on the other. Awesome. Peace. Thank you.